Isaiah 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you, as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end, and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Ayath, he has passed through Migram. At Michmash he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lysha, O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight, and the inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathras, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. 
They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was from Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. May he now guide us by his word and his spirit that we may see light in his light. Amen. When you need to be saved, where do you turn? Freed from worry and anxiety, where do you turn? Secured despite the apparent lack of provision. Delivered from the idolatrous lure of plenty. Unburdened from the hopelessness of suffering. Saved from sin and from death. When you need salvation, where do you turn? Suffering is coming. Suffering is already here. When Isaiah begins in that day, it's a day, a time of some suffering. And it comes after a time of great suffering. The city names in verse 28 are unfamiliar to us, but it's the prophet walking us through the Assyrian advance as they ravage the southern kingdom right up to the cusp of Jerusalem and its temple. Isaiah is warning God's people that it's coming. It is bad. It will be worse. And then it will get worse yet. What they will see and experience will be horrifying. And faithful and unfaithful alike, all Israel will suffer under this advance. The distinction will not be made in who suffers and who doesn't. It will be made And who perseveres? Isaiah has something to say here to the remnant. Those Israelites who trust God. And what he tells them is not to be afraid. And he tells them this not because they won't face difficulty. He tells them not to be afraid because they will persevere through the difficulty. And how he tells them this is not by answering the question, when will this happen, or how will we escape? What he tells them instead is the answer to another question. Who will save them? It's a question that matters. We all need salvation. And everything around us is vying for that central place in our lives. Everything makes attention-grabbing promises. Everything threatens fearful warnings to make it seem that it is what matters most. This is true of sinful things, false religion, selfishness, control. It's also true of good things, family, intellect, wealth, and pleasure. Everything claims it can save us. Everything claims that we deprioritize it to our own peril. 
But when Isaiah seeks to instruct and comfort God's people in preparation for astonishing levels of suffering, he doesn't turn to any of those things. In fact, in some ways, those are the things they need to be saved from. No, Isaiah directs them back to God. And he says from the outset that if they lean on him rather than anything else, they will be saved. Isn't that the lesson again and again in Israel's history? In many ways, it's the point of the Old Testament stories for us. God showing his people that he is the only one who can save. They then and we now were all looking for salvation of various kinds. And we look everywhere for it. We're impressed and taken in by the offers of the world, by its apparent power. We're impressed by ourselves, the possibility of earning our own way in, controlling our own destiny. But one author is right to observe that this is actually our greatest sin. To think and act as our own saviors, disrespecting the true savior of the world. We, he says, have good intentions, but he has all the wisdom and all the judgment and all the power. And so Isaiah lays out a prophetic warning. God's rebellious people will be judged for their sins. Many in Israel, even in Judah, are counting themselves as followers of God simply because their birth certificates say Israel. But in their lives, in their hearts, they're far from God. And now God will use Sennacherib and the Assyrian army to bring them low in judgment. Having moved through the territory of Judah with relative ease, in verse 32 They come within striking distance of Jerusalem. And as these terrifying events take place, city by city by city falls, leader by leader flees, the faithful remnant are there. They're living through it all. They're they're mixed in with unfaithful Israel receiving this judgment. And that's why God sends Isaiah with this word. Trying times are discouraging. Times of real suffering, fearful times are something even worse. And we call out to be saved from them, not just from the circumstances, though we want that, but also from the spiritual and emotional experience of hopelessness in suffering. That's why people turn to alcohol and drugs to save them. They think that this will free them, not from the circumstances, but from the depth of the experience of them. That's why people take matters into their own hands. They think they can change something. Many people think a fresh start is what will save them. And in all of these sorts of moments, I wonder, who do you think will save you? God brings Sennacherib right to the gates of Jerusalem. This is rock bottom, where it seems like it cannot possibly get any worse. But that's just how God works. When things aren't 
quite this bad. When things are just one notch above, so we think, our strength, we're inclined to fool ourselves. We believe that something other than God could save us. One pastor describes the prophet here as using the overwhelming, relentless details of this suffering to give a more impressive view of the kindness of God. Jerusalem's preservation is not moving from okay to something better. It is like a sheep in the jaws of a lion being pulled out just before its death. No human aid can save them now, which is good because no human aid is forthcoming. The godly live through the reality of Assyria's advance too. They're not immune from the pain and the suffering caused by God's judgment on sin and the curse on this world. But because God had spoken to them through Isaiah, their experience was different, for they saw what the ungodly could not. They saw that every move of the Assyrians was in accordance with God's own plan. You see, it's easier to live under the weight of what the enemy can do when you are secure in the knowledge of what the enemy cannot do. While God can use every force in this world for his purposes, those forces cannot go one inch beyond what he purposes for them. That's why one of the most helpful habits ever suggested to me was a faithfulness journal. It doesn't have to be fancy or formal. Technically, it doesn't even have to be written, though that helps. But there is great value in keeping track of all the times in your life that God made a way where there seemed to be none Remembering his past salvation can really strengthen our, ta- our spines in future times of trouble. Isaiah alludes to two of those examples, what the Bible calls Ebenezer's, stones of remembrance. There are two of them within this passage referenced several times, Midian and Egypt. And we won't get into the details this morning. I hope you remember them. And if not, go read the stories again. They're great. These are both cases where God's people were saved despite overwhelming numbers and circumstances being against them. There there are times where God's people were brought to the absolute brink and delivered in such a way that they knew it could only have come from God. Their backs are literally to the Red Sea as an army intent on their destruction approaches. They're outnumbered by an order of magnitude. And that's when God delivers them. You see, the salvation that God effects is more powerful than anything in the world or more powerful than anything the evil one brings against us. Here for Judah in this moment, sin is bringing about something huge. This is the downfall of the Davidic dynasty. This is no small thing. Jerusalem will fall, all of Israel. And yet there will be a remnant. 
a remnant through which the line of David will continue and through which the Savior of the world will come. And though he used them as an instrument of judgment on his people, God makes clear here that Assyria will itself also be judged. They're God's enemies, rebels against him, rejecting his grace day after day. Make no mistake, he will deal with his enemies. Verse 33 describes his terrifying power. Verse 34 uses the remarkable title, the majestic one. All the lofty, those who set themselves up in prideful opposition to God, they will be brought low. All others who claim the power to save, they'll be brought to nothing. This section of the text is organized around God's military title, the Lord God of hosts. It's used to introduce multiple different sections here. When she has served God's purposes, God reduces Assyria to a fraction of her strength. The Lord of hosts always wins. He is mighty in battle. And Isaiah describes it, he uses the metaphor of a forest, mighty trees like the cedars of Lebanon being clear cut and then burned over. We were watching the new Amazon series, The Rings of Power, as a family last night. And there's a scene early on that shows the total devastation of Middle Earth after centuries of war. It's exactly what you'd expect. Every building is ravished. Every tree is cut down. Every inch of grass is burned. The earth is scorched. Nothing remains. That's the picture here. And it's because of sin. It's the picture because that type of judgment is what the earth needed if anyone was to be saved. For God to make all things right. For God to make all things new. For us to achieve the redemption for which we and the creation cry out. He had to begin by burning it all down. One man said the infestation of human pride is like a vast forest and God swings his axe and the whole evil system falls. It's bare stumps as far as the eye can see. And it's terrifying. And it ought to be terrifying. But as God brings this terrifying judgment against evil in the world, where are his people to turn for salvation? Where do they turn even for freedom from fear and anxiety about what's happening? Where do they turn for deliverance from the hopelessness of suffering? If they're to be saved, Isaiah says they must turn back to him who will save them and Isaiah says look look carefully look at the forest floor look at the scorched earth 
For behold, from this ruin comes a shoot, a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Continuing the forestry metaphor, Isaiah looks beyond the judgment to the restoration of God's people and the recreation of all things. And as we live in this present evil age, he tells us to fix our eyes on that, on the shoot. And that is the answer to the question, who will save us? Isaiah doesn't know him by name, but he's pointing God's people to Christ. They don't need to know the timeline, but they think they do. How long, O Lord? They don't need to know more details about how God will save. Should we make a treaty with the Assyrians? Should we move this chess piece or that one? They need to know a person, the Savior of the world. That's the question God answers. He describes Christ here in terms of his own characteristics and in terms of his impact on the world and in terms of his impact on those who believe in him. Of this shoot and branch, Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It says he's knowledgeable, he's wise, and he teaches with absolute authority and power. For us to be freed, aren't there some things you need to know? Don't you need to know the way of life, the way of righteousness? Friends, he can teach you. The fear of the Lord is his delight. He judges by righteousness and not by appearances. Under his reign, the wicked will not prosper and the meek will inherit the earth. He alone has the wisdom and the power and the godliness to save. And that's why the world under his rule will be at peace. That description is familiar to us. The lamb is safe with the leopard as the child is safe with the cobra and the adder. There will be no death. His people will not hurt or destroy. No war, no conflict. Why? Because he taught us. Because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. All things are made new in his wisdom and his power. Even the remnant of Israel, those receiving this promise, they're not sinless now. But they are trusting God in faith. And so he will make them sinless. He will make them righteous. He will regenerate them, giving them new life in him and all the blessings that flow from the knowledge of God. But now, and more soon, they will suffer. God's people will suffer. It will feel as though God has abandoned. And that's why verse 10 promises that Jesus, the root, will be a signal for the people. Kids, this is a description of a giant banner, the kind armies used to use when they would march into war. The battlefield is chaotic. The battlefield of life is chaotic. It's easy to get turned around, to get lost, to not know which way to go, to forget who's on your side. It can feel frightening and overwhelming. 
And in life, there are times where we feel like what we need most is clear direction. And God says, look up ahead. Here's the signal. Here's the banner. It's the sun. It's the root, the glorious branch, the banner of Jesus that is always waving where we can see it. That's the way to go for deliverance and for freedom. How many verses in this morning's passage began with something like the Lord will or he will? Did you get it? He will. He is the one who saves. Not us, not our idols, not the powers of this world, not our wealth, not our control, not any of these things calling out to be at the center of our lives. God will save his people. He will purify us. He will provide for us. He will lead us. He will give us the victory over our enemies. When there appears to be no way forward with our backs to the sea, he will part the thing. When we are miserably outnumbered as the Midianites, he will become strong in our weakness. When we can't see any way forward through the darkness and the fog of war, he will raise the banner of Christ. When we are not strong enough even to return to him he will gather us him 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 we believe a bunch of lies we believe a bunch of lies we believe first that salvation will come through the avoidance of suffering that doesn't work Then we believe salvation will come through our manipulation of this suffering or the circumstances or some powers of this world. Salvation will not come because we save ourselves. It will come from the hand of God who perseveres us in Christ. There is no other means of deliverance. Go ahead. Try everything else. Many of us have. If you combined the experience of the people even in this small room of all the idols we've reached out to for salvation, we've tried about all of it. And there is only one who can save. This take hit me right between the eyes. I'll try to get through it. When he rips from your arms... Some false trust that has struck you a thousand times. And a thousand times you've gone back to it in servile compliance. And you're ready to go back to it again. When God rips this from your arms, do you see what he's doing? He's gathering you to himself. He's setting you apart as one of his remnants. Dear to his heart. In our suffering and our panic and our sin, we reach all around us to take hold of what we think can save us. And even when we decide to approach God in our suffering, we tend to ask why and how long. The most important question is the one that God has promised to answer in our suffering, the one he's already answered in our suffering. 
It's who will save me. Is the answer to that enough for you? It's really the experiential question of the Christian life. Because false gospels claim to offer so much. Not just freedom. It's freedom plus with these false gospels. They're going to offer you respect. They're going to offer you control, safety, security, power, love, pleasure. They're going to offer it all. They're going to claim they can give you control of the why and of the how long of everything in your life. They're going to know the deepest desire of your heart. And they're going to claim that this is the best way to get it. They're going to convince us that we can change ourselves or that we can change our circumstances enough to make all the difference. And do you know what's tragically sad? Is how often it works. That these idols convince us that we have to settle for what they're offering rather than what God has offered us in Christ. Not just that last salvation from sin and death, but every step along the way, living as a free person, living where the joy of the Lord is our strength, living as one who is forgiven and can forgive, who is loved and can love. We settle for so much less because we believe the lies of these idols. We create a religion of works, piling heavy burdens on our backs and on the backs of others, doing everything we can to please God, fooling ourselves into thinking we found a way to be saved. Or we create a religion of license, living how we want to Monday through Saturday, but checking a box of church attendance on Sundays. And deep down, we know neither work. Every person I have ever met and counseled pastorally that is living beneath one of these lies knows in their deepest, darkest place that neither one works. These things cannot save you, but we settle for them. We settle for playing pretend. The best metaphor for this that I think has ever been written was C.S. Lewis with his famous mud pie example. He said, if we consider the staggering nature of the rewards the Gospels promise, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We settle. Lewis is right. We're far too easily pleased and therefore we're far too easily fooled, accepting as salvation and freedom counterfeits that are ultimately far short of it. The real gospel changes first is why it makes all the difference. 
For you see, the gospel does not begin with changing our circumstances or changing our view of ourselves. The gospel first changes our view of God. I've heard some say that our problem isn't our self-image. It's our God image. We need God to show us that he's not just some nice man with a lovely plan for the future, but very little practical help now. We need to see God the way Isaiah describes him here. All wisdom and understanding and might and knowledge are his, and he is deploying every one of those resources toward one task, the salvation of his people and the redemption of the world that he made and loved. Do you believe that that is what God is doing? Because if you will believe that, if you will take this vision that Isaiah has of God and receive it and make it your own, you will have the opportunity to move beyond the mud pies of this world and find true delight, true security and love and acceptance and value and enjoyment. True freedom. Freedom from fear and hopelessness and sin and death can never be found in what we're doing. But they can fully be found in what he's done. Christian, you need salvation. To whom will you turn?